This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. We have on the line with us our first guest already. She is Representative Pam Hornberger. She's a Republican of Chesterfield Township. She represents the 32nd House District. Thank you, Representative Hornberger, for being once again our guest. Hey, it's great to be here with you guys this morning. Already, you have been elevated to Speaker Pro Tem of the Michigan House. That's the second or third highest leadership position in the House. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. It's quite an honor to be uh, recognized by my colleagues in a leadership position. And what are your positions um, and your other titles, like your committees and so forth, in the House right now? Um, So in the House right now, I am currently, I'm going to continue to serve as the Education Policy Chair. Um, I am going to, I served as a policy chair last term. I am going to um, sit again on the K-12 Appropriations Subcommittee for K-12 and uh, Michigan Department of Ed. And I sit on the Full Appropriations Committee. Yeah, you, uh, to me, are the most interesting legislator when it comes to K-12 education because I believe you are a teacher in a K-12 district, but you served on a school board in a neighboring K-12 district. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Yep. I um, I taught for almost 23 years in the East China schools in St. Clair County. I taught um, art. Um, and then I was on the school board, um, elected to the school board in 2010 in the Lance Cruz Public Schools, which is um, a big school district in Macomb County. Right. Now, you put out a couple of releases this week, one uh, taking note of School Choice Week, which this Correct. is, and also about the Republicans' COVID-19 plan put forth this week by the House. Why don't you tell us about those? Um, well, School Choice Week, um, School Choice is always kind of a contentious issue, especially because I came from public education, you know, from traditional public education, um, and a lot of, still a lot of traditional uh, people in the traditional public school arena will, you know, take exception to um, charters and choice. But, you know, digging deeper into it as a state legislator and getting having the opportunity to visit, um, you know, some charter schools, really good charter schools, and, you know, coming to realize that we have over half of the population of just students in Detroit, in the metro area, in the city of Detroit, that choose charters um, because their families, you know, for some reason feel it's a better option for them. And being able to sit down with the kids at Cesar Chavez Academy and at University Prep and actually talk to them about how, you know, switching from a traditional school into this charter school has changed their lives, it, it, it's hard to say that, you know, families shouldn't have that choice. Um, so anyone who is a naysayer on school choice, I would urge them to, you know, find a way to visit one of those schools or visit another charter and, and talk to the kids and talk to the families, you know, and find out how choice, having that choice in education has, you know, done a world, made a world of difference for their students and for their families. Right. Now, what about the Republicans' COVID-19 plan and particularly how it differs from Governor Gretchen Whitmer's COVID-19 plan? Well, I think for the most part, 
you know, all of us, the governor, Senate, the House, we all want what's best for, you know, Michigan and the economy and, you know, our constituents, restaurant owners, business owners, students, and we're going to differ on some things on how we're going to get there. Um, I think the biggest issue right now is how we're going to allocate money. How is that money going to be released, and, and, and what are the metrics and the measures for, um, you know, opening restaurants, for opening businesses, for opening schools, as far as, you know, co- the COVID impact is concerned. So um, I think that the biggest differences are, you know, we're going to differ on those, and we're going to have to come to some agreement, because if we don't, I'm, I'm going to tell you, we have, you know, new leadership in the House, and it seems to be making a world of difference. Uh, Speaker Wentworth and Appropriations Chair uh, Thomas Albert are doing one heck of a job. You know, we want accountability. The people in Michigan are are just, you know, anguished and, and hurting, and they want to know why. People can deal with having to close their business or stay home or any of those things if they're given the information and allowed to make the decision. When there's a lack of information and there's a lack of, you know, follow-through and transparency, it's really difficult. And, and what's been happening in the state of Michigan, you know, everyone wants everyone to be safe and operate safely and open schools safely, you know, and, and when you make arbitrary decisions to close schools, to close restaurants with, you know, a lack of data, um, it, it's really difficult. So we're going to we're going to differ on how we get there. And uh, the bottom line is going to be um, it's going to be about money. We're we're going to differ on how the money is allocated and how the money is dispersed and when the money is dispersed. So it seems to be the one thing that um, is going to bring the governor to the table to work the way that we're supposed to work. You know, as a team running the state and not as one person dictating what happens in the state. Representative Hornberger, uh, would you describe for our listeners what makes up the 32nd House District, which you represent? Sure. So if, you, if you're looking at the map of Metro Detroit, I'm at the northern end of Lake St. Clair. Um, I have Chesterfield Township, which sits right on Lake St. Clair, um, and New Baltimore, city of New Baltimore, um, right on the water. And then um, I have a big piece of St. Clair County, so um, Tasco, Wales, Ira, um, Columbus Townships, um, all the way up, all the way past I-69. Um, by Port Huron, I have Kenoki Township. So um, it, just a, a, a nice mix of, you know, suburban and pretty rural. It gets pretty rural pretty quick. I-94 cuts right through the middle of my district. Representative Hornberger, let me ask you, how much of your House district overlaps with the 8th Senate district because there's a vacancy in the 8th Senate district because Peter Lucido, who has been the state senator there for two years, had to resign uh, at the end of the year to take his new job as Macomb County prosecutor. And so there's a vacancy and there's going to be a primary in August and a general election in November to fill that seat. And as I understand it, you are running to win that nomination and election to succeed Peter Lucido, how much of your district overlaps with the 8th Senate District? So um, Chesterfield is in the 8th Senate District, which is um, a pretty big piece of the voting base. And then I also, you know, uh, my time on the school board 
for Lance Cruz gives me, um, you know, a little bit of name recognition in Harrison Township, which is another big piece of the voting base. Um, so those two areas. Um, uh, Harrison Township is not part of my state rep seat, though. So um, it was, you know, that, that's a pretty interesting story. It was a pretty difficult decision to come to um, because, you know, I, I love being Speaker Pro Tem, and we have a great leadership team and a great caucus right now. Um, but it does give me the opportunity to, um, you know, serve that extra year and a couple months in the Senate, which um, is it makes a huge difference in the role that you play, you know, getting reelected into a first full term in the Senate and a second full term, it makes a huge difference. And um, it could have a, a great impact, a, a positive impact for Macomb County and for the southwest, um, or, I mean, southeast Michigan area. Well, so, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can be Speaker can. Pro Ten and run for the Senate. And I can, and it's been done before. You know, uh, Pete McGregor, the Senator McGregor, just ran for Kent County Clerk, and he was in leadership in the Senate, and it wasn't an issue. And um, yeah, it's 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 quite possible, and it's quite doable. And and I do have to say, you know, there were other factors came, that came into play. Um, I worked and walked and knocked doors, thousands of doors, to keep majority in the House. You know, I had no, this running for Senate was not on my radar. Until the governor called the race, I sat down with my township supervisor, who is a former state rep, and I knew that he wanted to do it. And, you know, we had a, it was, his name is Dan Acovetti, he's a great guy. We had a long discussion about it, and, um, you know, we came to the conclusion that I was going to be the one to run. Okay, well, look. I would love to talk to you about this more, but we got plenty of time between now and August and November yeah. to talk about it. So we'll do it again. But thank you, Representative Pam Hornberger, Republican of Chesterfield Township, for being our guest. Great. Thank you so much. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have with us Representative Bob Bazat, who is a Republican of Marion Township in Livingston County, just outside the city of Howell. And I believe his 47th House District includes Howell, the city, and I think 11 townships. Is that correct, Bob Bazat? Yes, uh, that's exactly correct. We have... Uh... Actually, 16 townships in the county, and we represent 10 of them because we're more of a rural area. Right. And you were a county commissioner before you became a state rep, and you were the elected county sheriff, Livingston County Sheriff, for a number of years. So you've got tremendous background. Uh, Here you've been thrust into the fire of the Lansing State Government Capitol, and uh, you got to hear the governor give her... State of the State message this week, really a unique event in the sense it was virtual. She gave it, uh, you know, off uh, site, not in a joint assembly of the House and Senate for maybe the first time in Michigan history. She gave it remotely. I'm just kind of curious, where did you hear it uh, or see it? Did you do that in the privacy of your home? Did a bunch of uh, legislators get together and uh, look at it? and respond to it together or not? What happened? I did. Uh, my wife and I watched it from uh, from our living room. So 
it was, it was much more private for us. That's probably the best way. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, what did you think of it? Well, I uh, I went into the uh, listening to her state of the state with a. I was very optimistic that she would address some of the issues that our constituents have been calling us on, and that's uh, you know the restaurants are being devastated, you uh, sports. Uh, has been dominating cell phone lines, and our constituents are concerned about, uh, you know, their livelihood, basically, their, and, and their mental health. So I was hoping to hear uh, her address some of those issues. So I, I was a little disappointed there. And then the other thing, uh, I come from a from a background where I, I sit down and I try to talk to people and, and let's resolve issues and, and then move on to the next issue. And she said numerous times that a bipartisan uh, cooperation, which I know for a fact is not happening, and she has refused to meet with uh, Republican leadership in the Senate or the House. So when she tells the uh, Michigan people that it's a little dis- disappointing to, uh, for her to put that out there when she knows for a fact that she has refused to meet. She, she just met with uh, Jason Wentworth, our speaker, yesterday, I believe. And you know, so if you're if you're very if you're interested in solving issues for Michigan, you know, small businesses, uh, youth sports. And, and the COVID issue, obviously, we've learned a lot over the last year. If, if you're really interested in these issues and resolving them, uh, why wouldn't you sit down with uh, the leadership of the House and the Senate and try to come to, a, to an agreement that we can go out there together and, and tell the public, okay, we support the governor on these issues and uh, we've come to these agreements instead of this, you know, this political back and forth. And I listened to some of the Democrats yesterday about, you know, the COVID funding in the schools, and right away they go to, you know, we don't care about the kids. And I'm thinking, you know, you know they, they want to work together, and then they go out and, and mislead the public. So I, I think that's been my biggest disappointment so far. Well, the governor initially at the start of the year said she was going to allow restaurants and bars, if I remember correctly, to open on January 15th. Then she pushed that back two weeks to February 1st. But I don't think high school sports is supposed to be able to open until February 21st. And I'm just hoping that she she doesn't uh, extend the February 1st deadline for bars and restaurants again. And I'd just like to ask you, what do you think the chances are that she might move up the start of winter sports in high school uh, from February 21st to an earlier date? Well, if history shows us anything, uh, I, I, I've been optim- optimistic that she's going to do that on numerous occasions, and, and she hasn't done that. So I, I don't think that's going to happen based on, uh, on her past actions. But I, I do think that um, when you talk about restaurants opening uh, on February 1st, many of, the, many of the restaurant owners in our district – you open up at 25%. A lot of them aren't going to open up because they can't afford to pay their bills. You know, so opening up at 25% is, you know, for a lot of people, it's it's, it's useless. And that you have to open up at, from what they're telling us, at 50 to 75% so they can at least open their doors and, and survive and make a little bit of a profit and pay their bills. Representative Bazat, uh, the governor came out this week with her COVID-19 relief plan. It was something like $5.5 billion. Uh, the Republicans responded actually before her state of the state, and they said, well, we're going to cut that back to $3.5 billion, uh, $2 billion less than the governor is proposing. And we have some caveats in there about things that we think the governor should be doing or not doing. 
uh, if we are going to go along with any part of her COVID-19 relief plan. What do you think about this back and forth? Well, I think uh, Representative Albert put it in his in his committee, put a great plan together. If you look at, uh, you know, what he's done for small businesses, especially, and they've, they've suffered the most. So I think that should be a priority right now to try to take care of them. You know, $150 million that would be deposited into the state's unemployment trust fund, $38.5 million reimbursement fees for liquor license, and then $22 million to assist in, you know, unpaid summer taxes. Those, those things directly affect and help our restaurant owners and our small businesses. So I, I thought that was an excellent package. And then the $2.1 billion is tied to education, and it is contingent upon uh, at least let's sit down and talk and try to come to some agreements. And it, it, I, I agree that it's the only way we can bring her to the table because she's refused to, to talk. And I, I would even like to see a, uh, if you talk about transparency, let's, let's have some public hearings and let the public see what's going on. And, you know, the back and forth instead of the Democrats going out and, and kind of putting their spin on it and then the Republicans putting their spin on it. I thought Rep. Uh, Albert did an excellent job. He, he took in some testimony, and, and you listen to the testimony, and it was heart-wrenching, especially a lady from Detroit that was two blocks away from the Manugia mansion, and, and she put her whole life savings into this, and she's devastated. Her employees are devastated, and that's a common story across Michigan. Listen to some testimony from uh, Mr. McDonald, I believe. You know, there's over 3,000 restaurants that, that have closed and will never come back. Uh, the youth sports issue, you know, look at the travel travel teams and you go to another district and the kids look forward to going to dinner and, and you know hotels and so this is, has a, has a huge impact on our economy and we know who to protect I mean 99 percent uh, survival rate we know who to protect uh, our most vulnerable senior citizens I've got relatives that we're protecting and, and you know keeping them away from the you know the public and, the, and with the mask and the, and the social distancing I think we've learned um, how to react to this pandemic and I think any further uh, lockdowns is just is disrespectful uh, to the public. And we're adults. We know how to conduct ourselves. We know how to stay safe. And I, I just think this continue. And we're, we're one of what? Only one or two states, three states that are completely locked down. And common sense people, when we look at other states like Florida or Texas, and they've been open, I think the other one is uh, uh, South Dakota, we see how successful they are and how they've handled uh, the pandemic. And why can't we do that? You know, why can't we uh, kind of model their uh, their rollouts? And, and you look at the COVID-19, the rollout, the vaccines has been a nightmare for us as well in the state. Why is everything so complicated? And why is the Whitmer administration so incompetent on, on, on these issues? That's, that's very frustrating. Can't disagree with anything you've said, Representative Bob Bazad. I would like to talk more about your committee assignments, which you just got. But we'll get you back again because you've got a lot to say, and you say it very well. I want to thank you, Representative Bob Bazat, Republican of Marion Township and Livingston County, freshman state rep, taking his seat and immediately confronting big challenges in the Michigan legislature and Michigan government. Thank you, Bob Bazat. Thank you, Bill. appreciate your time. We'll be back in a minute. Stay tuned. We've got another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned and we are most fortunate to have with us former Lieutenant Governor, former Mr. Everything in Michigan government, Dick Posthumus. Dick Posthumus, thanks for being our guest. 
Bill, glad to be with you this morning. It's a beautiful day out here in this Michigan winter. I was going to say, you were always Republican of Alto, and you still, aren't you, on your farm uh, near Alto, right, in Kent County? Right, live uh, live right about two miles from where I grew up on the farm I grew up on. Well, you know, honestly, you're the patriarch of what I would consider to be the first family of Michigan politics. I mean, you've had more people elected yourself and your daughter, uh, Lisa Posthumus Lyons, who was a former state rep and is now clerk of Kent County. And now you've got your son, Brian Posthumus, in the state house. And he's a farmer up in Oakfield Township, north of you. Um, You, of course, were, my gosh, the Senate Majority Leader. You were the lieutenant governor. You were the nominee for governor in 2002. You were chief of staff for our former governor, Rick Snyder. You've done it all. Well, it's been an interesting career, and I've, I certainly enjoyed public service, and I'm, I'm very proud of my kids that, that have decided to take public service on. It's, it's especially in this day and age, it's not easy anymore. Uh, there's so much more conflict and uh, uh, disagreement. Uh, when, when I first came in the 1980s and 90s, we disagreed you know, with each other. Uh, but we were always able to be friends. But it's very difficult today. It seems like uh, the divide between Democrats and Republicans and liberals and conservatives are more than just uh, policy. It's 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 almost a, a becomes a personal problem. And and I think we've got to find a way to overcome that because we we can disagree. I mean that's been the history of democracy in America is to disagree. But we we've got to find a way to come together and respect each other's differences. You know, Dick Posthumus, um, there was that famous line in the movie Cool Hand Luke back in the 60s, I remember. What we've got here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> and uh, it looks to me like the governor and the legislative leaders are not communicating the way they should. And I'm just wondering, how do you look at that, uh, having served as one of the leaders in the legislature, and then, on the other hand, being lieutenant governor at the right hand of John Engler and then being uh, chief of staff to Governor uh, Rick Snyder, how difficult was it for you back in those days to communicate with each other, and why is it so difficult now? Well, I think it's always there's always been some difficulties, especially when the legislative leaders and the governor are the opposite party. I mean, I've uh, there, there's always that difficulty, and but you have to overcome that. And, and you know, I, I remember both when I was the majority leader and when I was serving chief of staff, there was always a, a sort of the argument that hey, you're not communicating, but you have to keep trying. And and I I think it's really important today, especially it, it's harder today because I think with social media and and uh, sort of the division. It makes it a little harder to communicate because it, it sort of divides the, the leaders. And so I guess my advice to uh, the majority leader, the speaker, and the governor is even though you've got these huge differences, it's important to come together and, and important, I would say, for the governor to bring the leaders together. It's important for the leaders to go there and, and at least keep working. It, it, uh, it's never easy, uh, but I think the the population of Michigan, the citizens of Michigan are asking, are expecting our leaders to try and and resolve many of these issues today. Well, let's look at the post 
COVID-19 world, if it ever arrives, <laughs> we're beginning to wonder. Uh, but we've got to believe that COVID-19 is eventually going to be overcome, and we're going to move on into the future. What do you see the challenges are for Michigan looking forward? Well, I think it's really important for our both our political leaders and our private leaders to begin looking ahead in order to succeed. Uh, just as uh, I think, just as the Depression and the World War II shaped the culture and the views of the World War II generation, and and the Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War shaped the views and culture of of the uh, uh, baby boom generation. I really think the COVID nineteen is a historical event that really is going to change and, and shape the culture of much of the Generation Xers and Millennials. And, and I, I think we can't overlook the fact that it's not over and we've got way too many deaths and we have to continue to uh, work to, to solve that. But we also know that it's going to end and we've got to, uh, I think, use just as in the past when there's been horrific events, We've learned new things that have created new opportunities, and I think we've done that COVID-19 is creating some opportunities. For example, in the private sector, we've learned that uh, more people in many businesses can actually work from home and be just as efficient. Well, that if, if business leaders that put that into their business plan and look ahead, they, it'll reduce the cost of bricks and mortar. It'll make uh, employees happier. So I, I, I think that's that's just an example or the example of, of uh, the, the, the fact you, it used to be we had to travel by plane and car to every meeting no matter what. Well, now we know we can do a lot of those things through Zoom meetings and, and do them remotely. Well, that saves a lot of money. It saves a lot of uh, commuting. So I, I think there's a new vision there in terms of the private sector. I think in education we've learned, for example, that uh, uh, we, we can do a lot more with with uh, online learning, uh, an example I use uh, frequently is is my stepdaughter. Uh, uh, she's a junior in in high school at the same public school I went to, and when they returned to school last spring, they gave the kids a choice of staying at home or or going out staying online. And my wife and I thought for sure she was going to want to go back to school because she's an extrovert, very social. But she chose to stay at home and do it online. And come to find out, it's because she gets very uh, anxious in these classroom settings. You know, and for 100 years, we've conceptually taught kids the same. We put 20 to 30 kids in a room for seven hours a day in front of a teacher, teachers. Well, kids learn differently. And many, and we used to, if a kid couldn't learn in that setting, we called them a troublemaker or a hard learner. But, in fact, their brain is wired differently. And so I think the, the educational leaders that understand this will, create, will be able to use this to create hybrid systems of learning that it, it, that sort of incorporate both in class as well as online, and I think that's going to be the same way in higher education as well. You know, Dick Posthumus, the Republicans are looking for a nominee for governor in, in 2022. <laughs> what about Dick Posthumus? You've got as good a name as anybody in the state, and you've got the experience and the capability. Well, why not Dick Posthumus? Well, uh, I've Right now, I'm trying to be a, a, a good father, a good husband, a good grandfather. <laughs> I think I've, uh, I, I think it's time for the next generation uh, of leaders to come in. I, I, I'd love to help uh, counsel both Democrat and Republican leaders, uh, but uh, I, I don't think that it's my time to uh, be a leader. I think uh, this is a chance for the 
for the millennials and Generation Xers to begin to move out. Just as John Kennedy, when he was elected as president, kind of was the new World War II generation coming in uh, to America, I think it's time for the millennials and Generation Xers to, to really shine. And, and I, I, th- I hope, I, I'm, I'm hopeful for them. I hope they also listen to baby boomers and the experiences they have and don't just say, well, we've all, we, you know, we screwed up and so we're not going to listen to them. But I, I think there's an opportunity here. It's just a matter of coming back together, arguing. Believe me, it doesn't mean you, dis, you have to agree on everything. You can disagree, but you have to respect each other's differences. We had your son Brian on a couple of weeks ago. He's a newly elected state representative. He said on this program he had no intention of ever running for public office. Uh, and then all of a sudden he was bitten by the bug. Uh, last year, and he decided, I'm getting into it. Uh, well, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm excited for him. I think he saw the opportunities and the time to make a difference, and, and I think he really is looking forward to doing that, and I, I'm, I'm happy for him. That's great. Listen, we could talk on and on and on with Dick Posthumus because he knows everything. He knows a lot more than he's let on in this program, and he let us know a lot, but there's a lot more there. So, Dick Posthumus, thank you so much for being our guest on The Political Insider. Glad to do that, Bill. Have a great weekend, and we will be back in a minute with still another guest. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Scott Ellis, and he is executive director of the Michigan Licensed Beverage Association. He was our guest about seven months ago. And Scott Ellis, welcome to the Political Insider. Good morning, Bill. It seems like seven years ago is where everything's been going. (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, look, just remind our listeners, what do you represent? I mean, how many establishments, businesses, and so forth? Sure. So we are, uh, we've been around since 1939, so right after Prohibition, and we represent, currently we're around 2,000 members, uh, and we, majority of our membership are, are what we call on-premise, meaning you can consume the alcohol at the location, hotels, bars, restaurants, golf courses, and that's the majority of our membership, and the majority of our membership are privately owned. We are not, um, a lot, we don't have a lot of chains or franchises in our, in our association, so it's the mom and pop, the family-owned business your local neighborhood pub and restaurant, and that, that's the base that we represent. I can't imagine uh, an industry or business uh, that's been more beleaguered and injured during the last 10 months, year, than MLBA and your people and your businesses. Uh, exactly how bad has it been, and what are the prospects going forward? So, you know, one of the things a member pointed out to me not too long ago is that it's almost like, or it is, this is the worst thing our industry's faced since Prohibition. We haven't had anything like this since then. And so um, right now we're looking at, I have members that are down 90% sales from, you know, from 2019. Uh, I think an average on some of our surveys that we did, an average down was about 75%. Um, so, I mean, it's gigantic crush, you know, crush the industry. And um, we try to remain optimistic. We know we've lost um, probably you know, thousands of bars over since over the ten months that have, just have not survived. It's a hard statistic to get a to get because once they close, you just don't hear from them anymore, and so you can't really get a good you know a good count. But based on our surveys and what people have told us, how long they'll survive. Like example, we have our last survey 
with this 25% reopening, um, 25% are not even going to reopen. It's not worth it. They can't even pay their bills. And um, about 50% said they won't make it more than a couple months at 25%. So it's a low profit margin industry, first of all. And then to have 25% in there, you can't, it's just not enough to pay the bills. Do you think that it's almost certain uh, it's right on top of us, February 1st, uh, you are going to be able to to reopen if they can reopen, if individual businesses decide. If they choose. If they choose. uh, You you don't think there's any possibility the governor could actually push this deadline back again, do you? Of course, the administration can. But, no, we have been in talks with the administration on on a daily basis. And as, as far as yesterday, I confirmed again, you know, we said, oh, absolutely, all plans are on to open on the 1st. Um, so I, I, I feel safe to say that we will be opening February 1st, and we're looking forward to having everybody back. And our members are, are ready to go with all the safety protocols, the, the, the sanitizing and the mask wearing, and, and they're ready, and they're hungry. And those workers, they want to get back to work. You know, there are some people in the news media who obviously do not have a clue what it takes to run a business uh, like you have described. And there are some doubting Thomases in the news media who say, you know what, we hear all this stuff from uh, MLBA and other uh, food industry services, restaurants and so forth, that they simply cannot open with the caps that have been put in place by the governor, the 25% capacity and so forth. And yet uh, we have doubts, this is the news media talking, uh, that anybody is going to fail to reopen, who could reopen on February 1st. That's what they're saying. So I just asked for your opinion about that. Sure. There's a couple of ways i like to answer. For one, I was a police officer in law enforcement for 20 years, and I always used to say, Come walk in these shoes before you make a judgment on, on, on what, we, what they go through. And I think that's similar to this here. Come stand behind that bar, stand in that kitchen, find employees, deal with trying to get people hired, order your food, and buy that food, by the way, that you have to buy. And then if you get shut down again, I mean, I know of dumpsters being filled up with food every time we got shut down because it goes bad in beer. So, you know, first response is clearly they've never owned a business. They don't understand that everybody thinks a small business owner is rich. That is not the case by any means. We know, I mean, anybody that's in, the, in, in any business knows that. So for them to say, I mean, I know of some places that for sure are not reopening um, because, again, the, the cost to reopen, bring back the employment, uh, buy all that food maybe and do all that for 25%. Um, if, if we built our businesses on 25%, we would be rich, right, because we would operate at that all the time and, and just make that profit off the 25%. The other thing people have to think about, too, is 25%. Is not going to be 25% 100% of the time. So if I have a place that seats 50 and I'm allowed, you know, 12 or whatever in, not even 12 in there, or 12 in there, that I'm going to have, I have to have a lot of turnover. That average tab is $100, maybe not even 100, maybe $75. That does not pay your electric bill. Doesn't even come close. Right. Well, do you foresee a time when this cap is going to go up to 50% and then 100%? And when might that be? Well, I, I think 50%, and I, I, unfortunately I'm an optimist a lot, I think 50% is, is not far off. If we continue with the numbers that we have, have been or even plateau and stay where we're at, um, we have good conversation with the administration and DHS saying, look, these numbers are here, we're following everything you've asked us to do, um, you know, let's increase this to 50%. So we are already in talks to what's next. Um, the other thing that's going to happen, there's going to be a voluntary uh, dining program that um, 
bars and restaurants and anybody in the industry can voluntarily sign up for it, have to and look at their HVAC system and um, maybe some minor tweaks to it, or maybe it's already good to go that shows the air circulation is good. And this will be something that they can voluntarily get it inspected, get a check thing from, from Leo, from uh, Labor and Economic, and put that in their window and showing and letting the public know, hey, everything's good, it's safe. Again, voluntary, not mandatory, because you can't, you can't do something like that mandatory. Um, and, and we have to encourage the public to let everybody know it is safe to come into these places and following these protocols and, and by seated and mask and that type of thing. So I am optimistic, I think. I, I don't want to give a date because you just don't know. Um, but I would like to say that we are working and, and pushing and discussing uh, with DHS and the administration to, you know, get to that next next mark. Scott Ellis, is most of the damage that's been done to your industry come from top down? I mean, the strictures put in place by the governor and so forth. Or are you also having problems with employees who might be nervous about coming back to work because of the danger of COVID-19? You know, Bill, and, and you know why? It, it's absolutely both, and absolutely touching on employees. It's not only employees not wanting to; it's also owners. I've had owners say, "Look, I'm just not. It's not worth me opening at 25 percent to put an employee at risk right now." And so, um, many, you know, every owner looks at it differently. But I can tell you, the majority of our owners, their number one thing throughout all this has been their employees about getting them unemployment, getting them money, getting them back to work. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely a concern. But with our safety protocols of wearing masks and sanitizing and doing that type of thing, that it really reduces the risk of, of getting that of getting the infection. So they are making sure they do that to get it open. And then, of course, yes, our industry has been hit hard by these restrictions, as it has across the country. And um, there's no doubt that the restrictions and limitations have crushed this industry. And I've said it before, we're beyond the tipping point. We just got to prop us back up and try to get us back to that center and uh, try to salvage and protect what we have left. We have to save who's still here and, and, and try to find a way to help the ones that maybe didn't make it. Scott Ellis, uh, as you have reminded us, we cannot know precisely what the future holds. But let's say we get to the end of 2021 or let's say 2022. You said at the start of your appearance here, you've got 2,000 members in MLBA. What do you think? You're going to be down to 1,500? Are you going to lose, let's say, a quarter of your entire membership due to this coronavirus? It's very possible, yeah. I mean, like I said, we, we know at, at, at past surveys that we're 25% seem to be the number. The longer this went on, that goes on, this increases. And obviously the PPPs and the grants that the legislature and the governor um, have worked and, and passed has been helps surviving. And we know we're working on more currently right now for the upcoming future. Uh, we're looking at uh, trying to get reimbursements for their 2020 license fees um, and their, you know, all the fees that they pay. We're working on that and some property tax. So that will help them stay alive. Now, again, we can't fund and continue. We, we don't print money at the state level, right? So we can't print this money, just keep giving it to them. But we're going to continue to fight. And I, again, I hopeful that everything we can do will help save this. And I hope that the reduction is now being limited and um, it is not any more than normal attrition that we would see. We have a difficult time, I think, imagining that there could be anything positive that comes out of this terrible period. <laughs> but is there anything positive? That you, you know, positive, I think, Bill, is outdoor service. I've seen so many places adapt. 
and create these amazing winter outdoor services that I think you're going to see those come back every winter now because that space that they've invested in and money and built that they can use it. And I think that's going to be one. And then two, I think uh, from an association standpoint, it's definitely brought this industry back together. Wow. Well, look, you have done a magnificent job of describing your terrible situation and what you're doing to fight your way out of it. You're doing a great job. Thank you so much, Scott Ellis, Executive Director of Michigan Licensed Beverage Association, for being our guest. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. We'll be back next week with still more.